Hello and welcome to Trigonometry. I'm Francis Foster. I'm Constantine Kisson. And this is a show for you if you're bored of people arguing on the internet over subjects they know nothing about. At Trigonometry, we don't pretend to be the experts, we ask the experts. Our brilliant expert guest this week is the former executive director of the Adam Smith Institute, Sam Bowman. Welcome to Trigonometry. Thanks very much for having me. It's great to have you on, and thank you for coming in. Let's uh, let's just get right into it. We always ask our guests, first of all, what's been your journey to, to the place that you're in now? How have you got to where you are? District line or no? <laughs> <laughs> uh, well, um, I call myself a neoliberal. I spent a lot of my um, 20s, I guess, calling myself a libertarian. Um, from the age of about 12, when I read um, on, on Liberty by John Stuart Mill, I kind of thought, yep, yeah, this is the one for me. I'm a liberal of some kind. Can I just uh, interrupt you? At 12... Uh, well, I was interested in that kind of thing from quite a young age. Um, wow. And, okay. Um, I mean, I probably didn't understand. I probably don't. Still don't understand it uh, very well. <laughs> but um, yeah. So for most of my kind of teenage years and twenties, I thought of myself as being um, a liberal or a libertarian. And um, so in the last few years, for various reasons, I started to kind of realize or um, identify my view a sort of split going on in the libertarian world, and also. Um, kind of a parallel, that kind of split within libertarianism, a, um, a distinct group of people who were quite libertarian in some areas, but much less so in other areas. Sam, maybe for those people who are not fully familiar with the whole thing, can you just lay out what is libertarianism? So libertarianism is, I guess, the idea that individual liberty trumps pretty much everything else. So it's much more important that the state does not interfere, and, and other people don't interfere with your right to do what you want with your life, to do what you want with your money, with your property, than all the other concerns that we have. So, uh, for example, a libertarian and uh, a socialist might disagree about property rights. Socialists might say it's reasonable for us to take uh, money or property from rich people in order to give it to poor people or in order to provide things like health services or education services to poor people. Um, libertarians, to varying degrees, would disagree. Some libertarians would just say, no, it's never acceptable to take property from one person to give it to another. Taxation uh, is theft. Taxation is theft. Other libertarians would say, um, even though it might seem like a good idea, that will lead to bad outcomes, um, and then they'll get kind of some sort of, you'll get a spectrum in between as well. Um, now, I kind of always, they're also very, very strong free, free speech people. They're people who think that you should be able to have sex with whoever you want as long as they consent as well, and they're adults. You should be able to put into your body whatever kind of drug you want. You should be able to more or less move around the planet wherever you want, provided there is somebody in another country willing to take you there, or, you know, put you up in their house or something like that. Um, and the view, the kind of basic libertarian view is that kind of individual liberty is the, it kind of trumps everything else. And... And where that dif differentiates from kind of conventional liberalism, which also agrees that individual liberty is important, um, liberals are a much, much broader set of people, and they tend to think that, uh, many liberals tend to think that that kind of individual autonomy doesn't extend into your economic lives. Libertarians think that it very much does extend to your economic lives, and your economic liberty is just as important um, as any other kind of liberty that there is. So um, for a long time I saw myself as sort of working within that, that vein. And I had a lot of time for libertarians, even though I, I no longer consider myself to be one. Um, I was the, as you said, uh, I ran a think tank called the Adam Smith Institute, which for a long time was the only kind of self-identified libertarian think tank in the UK. But for me, um, libertarianism um, was always a big tent, but I think began to, and I think it has really split um, in kind of not very nice ways into um, groups that I would not really identify as being liberals. They might they might be libertarians in a, in the sense that they use that word, but I don't consider themselves to be people who are that interested in individual liberty. And also, I think that, and I have become persuaded, and I did become persuaded, that um, libertarianism was really not sufficient when it came to the kind of distribution of resources. My view, kind of in a sentence, is a neoliberal, which is what I consider myself to be now, somebody who thinks that markets are very good at creating wealth, but they're not very good at allocating wealth, and that um, mar markets really are very brutal, they're very amoral forces, and even though they're very efficient, um, people who haven't been born with great gifts, people who have been unlucky in their life, will often get a very, very bad kind of 
uh, sort of slice of the pie, a very small slice of the pie at the end. So a libertarian would say that's meritocracy. They would say that's that, yeah. They'd say that's meritocracy. That's tolerable. Um, they'd say as long as that as you know as long as the market process has been fair, then the outcomes. Okay, that's a, that's a shame. That's a pity that, that that's happened. That there are poor people basically. But the thing that I think sometimes with those types of libertarians, they go, well, that's fair, it's acceptable, and I'm always saying, yeah, you're saying that because it's not you, mate. Yeah, right. Um, you might, that might be true. That might be true. I mean, that could be true. That could be said of almost any political um, p- position, right? That, mm. that, there, that there will always be losers in any political um, arrangement. And um, it's and, and arrangements that are brutal or r- arrangements that kind of don't do very much to help those losers, um, it's, it's, it's easy to just say, well, what if, you were, what if that was you? And that, that's, um, there's a philosopher who I don't actually like that much, um, a lot of people who consider who have similar beliefs to me do a guy called John Rawls um, and one device he uses I, I'm not a huge fan of his but um, one device he uses is called the veil of ignorance um, mm. so if we were thinking about what a, what a good um, sort of arrangement for society would be um, imagine you didn't know who you were in that society and and then uh, you know only if you would accept a society where you didn't know where in that distribution you would be it, would that be a just or could that be a kind of a society that would be sort of morally acceptable and I think that's a reasonable tool to use. Um, where I disagree with Rawls is that he thinks that that implies a high degree, a degree of equality. Um, for me, equality is not really the end, the, the thing that we should be caring about. What we should care about is the well-being of people. Um, I'd be much happier to be uh, to live in an unequal but rich country. I'd, ra- I'd rather live in somewhere like the UK, which is very unequal, than in a much poorer country that had a much more equal distribution of wealth. And um, that's where I think the kind of Rawlsian approach isn't always that useful. Um, so what's your solution to this meritocracy is is brutal problem? For me, the the kind of neoliberal um, arrangement is very low regulation markets. Markets that are regulated really only in order to make them work better. So you might have regulations against cartels or um, in some cases monopolies. Um, but you don't have regulations that are there to, for example, give workers a bigger share of the pie. But after you've generated the wealth, the point of that being to have as much wealth generation and to have as much kind of efficiency and innovation as possible. And then after you've had the market process through a reasonably simple tax system and a reasonably simple wealth uh, welfare system, you just tax the rich and you give it to the poor. Mm. Um, and it, the, the, the arrangement being very, very free markets with simple redistribution of income from the rich to the poor. I mean, that in in theory, that's great, but we can see now the problems with trying to tax big corporations is that they find loopholes in loopholes and loopholes, and it's very, very difficult to tax them effectively, like we've seen with Amazon or with Starbucks. I mean, how would you ensure that works? Well, I wouldn't tax corporations at all. Um, corporations are not the way. Taxing corporations is a really bad way of taxing the rich because um, that money comes out of investment uh, because it makes return, returns to investment lower and it comes out of workers' wages. Um, the evidence is reasonably strong about this. Where we should be taxing rich people isn't when they save or invest their money. Investment, I think, is really good. We should be incur- Basically, investment is you not using resources that you have a claim to so that other people can and use those resources in a more productive way. So we should want as much investment as possible. What we should do, what we should be taxing is consumption. So it's when you, when you draw down those investments and say, okay, I'm going to buy a boat or I'm going to spend this money on a night out or I'm going to just eat, this, eat these resources by spending it on food. That's when that wealth is destroyed. That's when the wealth is no longer usable by other people and where, where kind of socially, as far as society is concerned, the wealth is no longer useful. And that's the point where we should be taxing it. So we can do that through... There are, there are, it's a bit maybe boring to go into different types of tax like that. Actually, the value-added tax is a pretty good way of doing that. I was going to um, say you want 80% VAT on boats. Uh, is that where you are? Something like that, yeah. yeah. I, I, I probably wouldn't have different rates for different things. Um, mm. What I would probably do is have a flat rate on everything and then give, give poorer people a cash... Um, just a cash payment because um, having exemptions so for example having exemptions on food even though um, obviously the point is that poor people spend a higher fraction of their income on food than rich people do rich people spend more money overall on food than poor people do so the money that we've not taken in in tax we're actually effectively giving rich people more or you know we're foregoing more tax from rich than we are from the poor so a better thing to do would be to have a kind of a flat VAT there are other things as well there's something called a progressive consumption tax um, but a tax on consumption 
and also a cash transfer to poorer people, to uh, or in fact to everybody. We could just give everybody a cash That's transfer. That's what I was going to go yeah. next, is universal basic income. Yeah. What do you think about the idea of... I'd like a give... cash transfer. Yeah, I'm sure you would. <laughs> yeah. 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 How much would you give? Um, <laughs> You're making it like Sam is going to be walking around just handing out <laughs> yeah, the cash. Yeah, yeah. I'm a simple man. I deal in simple ideas. How much are you going to fucking give me? Well, I've, I've tried to work this out for the UK, and I can't, I can't work it out because... It depends on what what you get rid of, right? So right. you could have a. Um, so you. I'm could starting have... to dislike you now, mate. You <laughs> promised me cash. You know Sam, I've never seen Francis so engaged <laughs> with one of our guests before. So, um, for example, by getting rid of the exemptions on VAT in the UK, we'd raise about sixty billion pounds extra a year. So you could, if you used all of that, that would be like an extra thousand pounds per person a year. But that's just for the VAT exemptions. Mm. Now, if we said that um, the welfare system, so things like housing benefits. Um, unemployment insurance, job seekers allowance, um, things like that. If we said that we wanted to replace those things with uh, just a basic cash payment, then um, the money would be higher. But you have the problem. The problem is that poor people at the moment get housing benefit and get job seekers allowance, and rich people don't get that. If you have a basic income, then rich people do get do get some fraction of that. So if all you do is eliminate existing welfare welfare payments to pay for a basic income, then you're effectively redistributing money that we're spending on the poor towards the rich. Right. And that's a very bad outcome. Yeah. That's not the kind of outcome that, that we want. Yes. So there are different ways of doing it. I This is the reason that um, I'm kind of... Even though I quite like the basic income idea in theory, I think that it's politically very difficult because what it would require would be for... Um, headline tax rates to rise in order to kind of fund quite a high basic income. It would be like saying we're going to give you. Uh, let's say you're a you know you're a, you earn a million pounds a year. You work for a for a close. For a, yeah, <laughs> close so um, we're going to give you an extra ten thousand pounds a year in basic income, but we're also going to tax you an extra ten thousand pounds a year in your tax. Yeah. Um, you would be that would be neutral for you. That would be how we would kind of make the system work. But. Honestly, I, I think it's a pretty hard sell to say we're going to raise taxes by this much so that you know the bottom 25% of society get to have this extra amount of money. Another way of doing it is through something called a negative income tax, which is to just say, if you earn nothing, you'll get £10,000 a year or £15,000 a year, and then for every pound you earn after a, single, after a certain point, we'll take away 50p. So you're always better off, you know, it's, it's kind of fixing the um, marginal tax rate, so you always have an incentive to earn more, but we're kind of slowly withdrawing the money as you do earn more. Um, to me, I've become, I guess, m- less um, fixated on kind of grand schemes to change the welfare system and more fixated on kind of principles to do with it's better to, if you're a liberal at least, it's better to give people money than it is to give people services. It's like, which would you rather get? Uh, a, money. A, a book voucher or money for Christmas? Yeah. You know, if, you, if, you're, if your grandmother or your aunt gives you a £20 Waterstones voucher, you're like, well, thanks very much. What yeah. the fuck can I do with that? I yeah. wanted the money, you know? Yeah. Amazon vouchers are the closest thing to money because you can spend them all. You, Amazon has everything. So they're, li- they're a bit like money, and yeah. so they're a lot better than, you know, a body shop, £20, because I don't buy things from the body shop. They don't have anything I want. Um, the same is true when it comes to kind of government services versus giving people cash. Um, if you'd rather £100 worth of NHS vouchers or £100 worth of education vouchers to £100, you're an idiot. Because um, £100 can buy everything that £100 worth of NHS vouchers or £100 worth of education vouchers can get you. Hmm. Uh, but it can also buy you a lot of other things. And, um, and we might talk about this a little bit later. I have become convinced that the core liberal belief, the thing that whether you're a left-wing liberal or a right-wing liberal, the, the core, when it comes to markets, the core liberal belief is anti-paternalism. It's the idea that people in charge don't know better than individuals about what's best for those individuals, provided, they, provided there isn't some sort of information that they're not aware of. And in that case, we should, if we do think that individuals are the best people to make the decisions for themselves with that money, we should be looking for a government that as much as possible, and it's not always possible, I mean, police and courts and things like that, it's not always possible, um, but as much as possible gives people the cash, gives people the money according to what they need, but doesn't try and spend it for them. And I mean, that's having trust and faith in human beings, isn't it? That's where you lost me. I don't trust <laughs> yeah. or have faith in anybody. Well, well um, it's not actually a question of having trust and faith in human beings. It's which human beings do you have trust and faith in? I have no trust and faith in government human beings, I have a little bit more trust and faith that you have your own self-interests at heart. Um, oh, yeah, it's not So it's not a question of, oh, well, <laughs> you'll spend it in a way that's really good for everybody else. It's just you aren't a better person to judge what you can spend that money on than you are. 
Um, so it's, it's purely that um, you, I think you have the knowledge and you have the kind of uh, incentives to spend that money wisely better than other people do. So it's actually, you know, I would say it's almost distrust of other people. Um, it's kind of cynicism that makes me prefer a sort of let the individual decide approach to government spending. So I'm in favor of quite a high degree of government spending and government redistribution. I just don't want the government to actually be spending the money. I want government to take the money from the rich, give it to the poor in cash, and then let markets provide the services that they want with that. Well, that actually makes a lot of sense to me. Uh, so we've, we've got a kind of philosophical background to, to some of your views. Let's talk a little bit more specifics. I, I heard you talking about Jeremy Corbyn, uh, and uh, we're not huge fans of Jeremy Corbyn on the show. Uh, don't let that prejudge your, your attitude. But you, called, you, you talked about him being a Marxist. And I don't know if you saw there was a, a, a woman on, on uh, the Good Morning show, uh, by the time this goes out, it will be a couple of weeks ago, uh, who uh, supposedly shut down Piers Morgan by ending her whatever she was saying with, I am literally a communist, you idiot. I don't know if you caught this. Yeah, yeah sure, yeah. What do you make of the rise of this kind of far-left socialism, communist? Because I'm from Russia, right? So for me, when someone says I'm a communist and no one seems to be amazed by this. That's basically like someone saying I'm a Nazi, right, given what communists did in my country, in China, in Venezuela, all over the place. Someone's basically saying on national television, I'm a Nazi, you idiot, and, they, and they're getting praised for it. What do you make of the rise? Because some of the ideas you talk about, they, they sound a little bit like, you know, the far left, to a sense, in a sense. I, well, I strongly disagree with the last point. Yeah, um, I, I strongly, know you do. strongly disagree. I think that... Um, the, the kind of fundamental, the kind of defining characteristic of the far left is the idea that the state should organize people's That's lives. True. The state should organize things. Yeah, yeah. It's not that, um, you know, it's not that some redistribution is tolerable. Pretty much everybody, I mean, Milton Friedman and F.A. Hayek, who are kind of libertarian, liberal heroes of mine, both um, believed in quite a high amount of government redistribution. So I, I don't agree with that. You're right. That was um, an unfair in the, point. In the, You're in right. Right. Apologise. <laughs> <laughs> I would like to officially apologise to Sam Bowman. Um, in, for the other point, um, I think we're seeing this on both sides. I think the right is becoming um, is becoming much, much closer. The kind of mainstream right is, is flirting much more with the far right. And I think the mainstream left is flirting much more with the far left. Um, when it comes to the left... Um, you're right, there's a total double standard. I mean, communism, in my opinion, communism and Nazism are roughly as bad as each other. Communism killed more people. Nazism uh, did, did its murder kind of on a, on a per capita basis in a more uh, sort of brutal way. And a more targeted but, way. And a more well. targeted way. More racist um, way. Yeah, yeah. But um, in terms of outcomes, I certainly would not want to live under either kind of regime. Both, both regimes are totalitarianism. That's the point. Mm. Um, it, the, the obsession over kind of left and right when it comes to Nazism and communism misses. It's totalitarianism that's the problem. And you can give it whatever kind of flavor or whatever kind of, kind of banners you want. Ultimately, it's when the, uh, when the state controls people's lives to a total degree, that's when you get this sort of mass murder and evil and so on. Um, why, is, why is communism tolerated um, in the public sphere? Well, partly it's because um, culture, elite culture, is, is just, in my opinion, much more left-wing, just institutionally. Um, I, I think, that I don't say that, I don't believe in, I don't really even know what cultural Marxism is, I don't believe in that, but um, I think it's obvious that most journalists are on the left. Um, it's it's um, basically impossible to be so left-wing in kind of elite, in elite you know, circles in academia and so on, um, that you're kind of considered to be untouchable, whereas it's very easy to be so right-wing that you're considered to be untouchable. Um, it's, it, I mean, it, there's basically no way you can say anything that, it, in terms of how left-wing it is, that isn't just sort of laughed off as like, "Wow, you're very, you're very optimistic, or you're, you're very, you're yeah. utopian." Yeah. Um, or if you're a communist, you're at, at worst you're a utopian, um, and that's not that's not entirely true. There are people on the left who hate communism as much as they hate fascism and Nazism, um, but. Clearly, the fact that this is like a fun Twitter tr kind of trending moment that uh, this um, this woman said to Piers Morgan that she's a communist, um, that really, I think, says says something quite bad. Partly it's because your average 18-year-old, because we have such a strong filter in society, a strong cultural filter against fascism and Nazism, and for obvious reasons, we fought a, a war that nearly destroyed civilization uh, to destroy these people, and it's it's a very good thing that we did we've built up sort of cultural antibodies. It's like a virus that, mm. would, as soon as it comes into the system, everything shuts down. We're going to destroy, it. We're going to destroy this virus, um, and, and that's a very good thing. 
Um, but we haven't developed those antibodies to um, come communism for various reasons, because we were allied to the Soviets during the, um, during the Second World War, because the elite, because elites have been quite left-wing for a very long time, long since the kind of beginning of the 19th century at, at least, um, and so they have a sort of, well, you know, I might not want to go as far as them, but I definitely sympathize with their aims and so on. And partly because fascism and Nazism just have much more evil kind of motivations. You know, communists can at least claim that, well, I, didn't, I don't mean for it to go into death camps and gulags. Um, I, I mean for it to go, to go really nicely. Whereas it's very hard to say you're a Nazi and not, and, and kind of disavow yourself of, um, of the kind of basically evil intentions. Um, but I think that because we have um, quite a lot of tolerance for, you know, the 18-year-old communist or the kind of mid-20s sort of cool communist type person, uh, because of that, um, we, allow, we allow that kind of meme to grow much, much more. In my opinion, we shouldn't be saying, look, you're evil if you're a communist, um, but we should say you should be aware that the thing you're in favor of is as evil as the thing that these evil Nazis are in favor of. You know, you don't mean for this to happen, but you should be aware that this is what happens. And I don't think we do that. Um, you know, there's very little in, um, in terms of history. I mean, history in the UK is very much focused on when it does come, come to kind of the, the 20th century ideological struggles. It, it focuses on the kind of evils of Nazism and fascism and doesn't really go that much into um, communism. Communism is almost sort of treated as aesthetically quite interesting. Um, you know, the British Library did, and it is quite aesthetically interesting. You know, I, I, I understand all these things and I, I don't think anybody's bad for this, but, um, it, but it's sort of treated as a curiosity and as a thing that occasionally went wrong. Rather than something that, <laughs> rather than well, it is. I mean, it, it is. Rather than something that's, that's kill me now. That's kind of inherently, um, you know, at best, like giving a drunk child the keys to a car filled with people. Mm. You know, that's that's the the best possible way of describing communism. Like the, the most generous possible way is it's it's something. It's like you're doing something so stupid. You might not realize what you're doing. You, but you're doing something so stupid that you are criminally negligent. Mm. Um, the but Nazi, it would go viral on the internet. But it would, well, yeah, well, right, exactly. Um, you know, and I and look, Piers Morgan is an asshole. But Piers, either Piers Morgan actually is the asshole that he appears to be on screen, or he's such an asshole that he acts like an asshole that he appears to be on screen. Neither, I don't know which is worse. Mm. I, I actually I suspect Piers Morgan being in on the joke is worse than Piers Morgan not being in on the joke. Um, so yeah, it's fun watching somebody tell him that he's an idiot on his show. That's great. Um, but. It's, I think people are excessively generous, uh, but for, for various reasons. So it's about education? For, for it's, it's more about challenging than education, mm. I would say. Um, you know, I, I think it's important to just establish, in terms of their outcomes, communism and Nazism are roughly as bad as each other. Mm. That, is a, that is a very... I don't want to get into, you know, which is worse. Um, that, I don't think that's a useful uh, They're a useful both exercise. very, very, very bad. They're both very, very bad. Nazis had better uniforms, though. Designed by Hugo Boss. Yes. Um, but they, I mean, actually what's interesting is how much of um, Western kind of... I can't believe you're taking this seriously. <laughs> well, no, but I mean, think, about, think about how much of what, what we consider to be the aesthetics of evil, how yeah. much of that has come from Nazism. Um, you know, it, it's, uh, and a lot of the, I mean, I, there's a brilliant book called Hitler and the Power of Aesthetics, and it's about the self-conscious attempt by the kind of Nazi regime to um, sort of develop a sort of quasi-neo-Roman sort of aesthetic. Mm. Um, and that's now what we kind of associate. So we, this is, goes back, the reason I'm going with this is this goes back to the kind of cultural antibodies we've got. This, you know, we, it's, it's so deep in, into our consciousness that Nazism is evil, which it clearly is, that, that even the sort of um, the icons that are used in kind of Star, Star Trek uh, that, that, or, or in kind of Star Wars... Um, that has, in other respects, you know, not, it's not that closely modelled on Adolf Hitler or anything, still uses the same kind of uniforms and mm. so on. It's just so, it's, it, it was that deeply ingrained into people's consciousness, um, which, which, is, which is interesting, and you, and, and you can kind of understand. You know, I'm try, what I guess I'm trying to get across is I can see why we've come to this point. I have quite a lot of sympathy. The average, as I say, the average 18-year-old communist I think is probably a bit silly. I don't think they're, you know, they're often not that stupid even. Whereas the average 18-year-old Nazi is either probably a combination of both deeply stupid and probably deeply quite evil. Mm. Um, you know, so there, there, there's clearly a difference in terms of the intentions of people. 
Um, but I think that rather than educating, or as well as educating, I would like to be challenging those people more. And I, and I would like to just establish, you might not realize this, but everybody else does think you guys are just as bad as each other in terms of what you're actually promoting. One thing that blew my mind is when Castro died. And so I'm in the comedy industry, which is incredibly left-wing, and the amount of people who went on the internet mourning his death, well, I, just, I just found it unbelievable. And especially because my mother's from Venezuela, Castro did a speech in Venezuela in 2005, I think it was, where he talked about the evils of the internet and how he said all young people shouldn't go on the internet. And he got openly booed. Yeah, wow. And it's just the fact that people would go on the internet and use a tool that he himself prevented his own people from using yeah. to mourn his death. Yeah, that's astonishing. Yeah, But I mean, again, they would probably tell, tell themselves, well, he was an idealist. You know, he, he wanted it to be this way, but it had to be this way. And as if that's an important distinction, you know, I, I really have very little time. I mean, I know, so, so one of the reasons that I'm a neoliberal is that I think outcomes matter above all else. I don't care what your intentions are, pretty much in any situation. I don't care about your intentions, I care about the outcomes and what actually happened. And what does this actually look like in real life? Um, and I think that's a, when it comes to people praising Castro, because I'm sure he went, he went really well in the 1950s, it's sad. It's really sad. So coming back to my Jeremy Corbyn question, and I, I, I take back what I said about your ideas <laughs> sounding left-wing. What I meant was, yes, I understand the difference between a planned economy and what you're talking about, which is a very loosely regulated economy. But the wealth redistribution yeah. is, is kind of part of that, right? Yeah. Do you think that the rise of someone like, well, rise is a relative term, but the emergence of Jeremy Corbyn as a viable leader of the Labour Party, the huge popularity Bernie Sanders gathered from young people in America during the last election, is that an indicator of the fact that wealth redistribution is an issue that's really, really key right now? I think partly. I think the underlying cause of, of that and the, of the broader... And I, I see Corbyn and Trump and Sanders and Le Pen and the Italians, uh, the, the Liga Norde and uh, the Five Star Movement, as all being kind of part of the same... You know, some are on the left, ostensibly, some are on the right. But the people who vote for them as a sort of... The system has failed us. Mm. You know, people, what, what, we were what we thought was working isn't working. And I don't blame them for that, right? Productivity growth, um, which is the kind of bedrock of economic growth, product getting better at doing what we're doing, is that is economic growth, um, and that's what leads to wages growing. Um, it's been abysmal in the UK. It's been worse than abysmal in Italy. Um, as, far as, I, as far as I remember, I think Italians are no richer now than they were in 2002, so they're effectively stagnant for the last 16 years. Um, it's been a bit better in America, but it hasn't been, um, I mean, wage growth has still been pretty poor, um, and, and they had a much deeper recession than we did. Um, if you are somebody who is on the median income, you're in the middle in the UK, um, you're lucky if, you're, if your wages, in real terms, are what they were 10 years ago. Um, it's, it's very, very possible that they were, are not what they were 10 years ago. I mean... Why, of course, why wouldn't you be a, a Corbynite, you know? I would be a Corbynite if I wasn't somebody... If I, if I didn't have quite strong beliefs about economics and politics already, yeah, of course I'd be a Corbynite. Um, it's not just to do with income growth in the UK. I mean, housing is the, is the biggest expenditure for all, almost everybody, and housing in the places that people actually want to live is increasingly expensive and difficult to... and, and worse. It's not just the price, but it's the quality. Um, so you, you used to have flats with a sitting room... Um, a kitchen and two bedrooms that are now a bedroom, a bedroom, a bedroom and a kitchen. Um, you know, and that's not picked up exactly by the um, by the rents data. Um, obviously, house prices are very, very high, and it's quite difficult to afford to buy a house. Um, the reason is that we don't build enough of them. But yeah, of course, especially if you're younger, why wouldn't you be a Corbynite? I, I, I would, I would, I would be shocked if I met somebody who didn't have kind of pretty strong beliefs. Uh, that that would kind of already that would call, kind of almost inoculate them against Corbynism um, if they weren't already, if they weren't a Corbynite. Um, so to me, the kind of fundamentals, the sort of economic fundamentals, matter um, quite a lot and are the sort of explanation for why we have this sort of dissatisfaction. And then it, the, the, the proximate reasons, the kind of specific to each country reasons then might explain why you get Trump in one country and why you get Corbyn in another or why you get Brexit or something like that. So, you know, they have um, quite 
strong concerns about Hispanic immigration in the U.S., so, so people um, are more inclined to vote for Trump, and there's pretty good evidence around that. Um, you obviously have the migrant crisis, which leads to support for Orban in Hungary and um, Lega Norde in Italy. So in each country, there are kind of specific things in those countries that kind of might tell you the flavor of, of if you want to call it populism, national, nationalist populism might be the best term for it. Um, but, and, and Corbyn is a nationalist populist. You know, Corbyn is very pro-Brexit. He's very pro-hard Brexit. And um, in, in my view, um, he is just as much a nationalist, really. In, I mean, I, he's, he's not in favor of freedom of movement with Europe. Um, he's, he's a person who is just as much a nationalist as Nigel Farage, but just in a different way. So if you were talking to a young Corbynite, uh, what would you say to them are the reasons that they shouldn't be a young Corbynite? I mean, I don't even know if I would try and argue them away from being a young Corbynite. Um, I'd say I think you're wrong. I think that my solution... <laughs> I'd say, I mean, Strong look, argument. I'd say, I'd say that I don't have a lot of evidence right now that I'm right. Um, mm. You know, I would say that my solution, I think... I've got, I do have evidence that building more houses is a better way of getting house prices down than rent controls. Mm. And, I, and I have evidence that if the private sector builds those houses, they'll be nicer to live in than if the government or the local council builds those houses. Um, that you won't have people dropped into sink estates and forgotten about if it's done by the private sector instead of done by the government. Um, I probably agree that Corbyn is no worse on Brexit than the government is um, because I think it, the evidence is reasonably clear that most younger people are kind of disproportionately anti-Brexit, and um, as am I. And um, I think I'd say, well, yeah, he's not, he's not much worse than the government on that. A lot of people seem to be voting him on the assumption that he is a lot better than the government. He's a lot more kind of pro-EU or kind of pro-British membership of the EU than the government is. But I, but I, I feel like the real people that I want to argue with and that I do argue with are the government, because it's all very well for me to say to the, to the Corbyn voter, oh, you should do what I want to do, but nobody's doing what I want to do. The, mm. the people who should be doing what I want them to do, which is to deregulate the housing sector so we can build houses and make it cheaper, um, for, for people to buy and to rent, are the government. Um, I think it's gotten a lot worse under Theresa May, but the Conservative Party in particular is completely bankrupt of ideas. Um, I think they have no idea where they're going. Um, they have kind of intentionally uh, choked off the sort of source of ideas that, that previ in previous generations was think tanks and kind of newspaper columnists and so on. Um, and I think that they're, you know, they're, they're really... They're the ones who deserve the blame for, um, in, 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 in part, um, the, the slow global recovery since the financial crisis is not their fault. Um, but just as the financial crisis wasn't Gordon Brown's fault, um, but the government could have done and could easily do a lot more to increase economic growth here, and that would mean wage growth, and to lower house prices, and that would mean the cost of living falling. And they're not doing any of that. So I wouldn't be arguing with the Corbyn voter. I'd be arguing with the Tory voter. And I'd be saying, get these people to, to actually do something, to make the market actually work for people, um, instead of just trying to put out fires across the, across the economy. But isn't the issue with the house, housing prices that no government politically can afford to allow housing prices to fall? Because the people who vote, the vast majority of the people who vote and own homes don't want that to happen. And so you end up in this, I think it's called the wealth trap in economics, where you can't allow house, house prices to fall because the price you would pay for that politically would be so high, you probably wouldn't be elected again for generations because the people who lost value in the, in the homes would never vote for your party again. That's possible. Um, in, in 1992, there was a pretty sharp reduction in house prices. And obviously, the subsequent years weren't very good for the Conservative Party. But... Um, it doesn't seem like they were, it wasn't house prices in particular, that it was more to do with the kind of, um, I guess people were bored of having, you know, 17 years of conservative government mm. and so on. Um, I'm not I'm not completely convinced that house prices falling would, would put the Tories out of power. Um, I do think that a kind of grand policy like abolishing the Green Belt would be pretty bad for the Tories. I think that um, we possibly overestimate in politics how much people vote out of self-interest and underestimate people's idea of what, and, and don't, don't properly appreciate people's idea of what's kind of good for society. My view is the green belt. Yeah, some people are voting to protect the green belt to protect their own house price. I think a lot of people are protecting an idea of England and an idea of kind of green lungs for the cities that people can go to. And that's, um, 
on the one hand, that makes it more challenging as an economist to kind of design a system that might sort of satisfy them. But on the other hand, it means that if they could be convinced that we could have a greener system, for example, we could say new developments need to have more parks and gardens. Um, parks and gardens tend to be environmentally a lot better for the environment than the farmland that's on the green belt because they're biodiverse and Greenland farm belt is usually a monoculture. Um, there are things like that that we could do. We could point out that people go to their garden and go to their local park much more often than they than go to the green belt. In fact, I think the statistics for London are that the average person visits the green belt to actually for recreation less than once a year, um, which is pretty bad if the green belt is supposed to be there for recreation um, or for a kind of amenity. Um, and I think we can do marginal improvements. So we can make it easier to densify streets. Uh, we can allow streets by streets to have just votes. Just I, I live on a street in South London. There's no real reason that I shouldn't be able to, perhaps in association with some lucky property developer, um, set up a little vote for my street. Everybody is allowed to add one story to their building. Um, and there you go, that's 50 extra flats, you know, maybe 60 extra flats on that street. There's no reason that that shouldn't be possible. All the individual housing house owners, their benefit, they get to Im improve their property. Um, and there you've sort of improved the connection between new house building and the existing homeowners benefiting. Um, there are things that we can do to just allow more density in general without necessarily having a lot more towers, although I would like quite a lot more towers. But I think being fatalistic about it is the, is the um, thing that we have to avoid because um, really if you, do, if, you, if you don't build more houses out of fear of, ho of homeowners punishing you, you're gonna you're gonna have non-homeowners punishing you. You know somebody's gonna punish you, and at least by building more houses, you create more growth, you create more wealth. There's more stuff. Um, there people are better off. Um, generally, in politics, I think the best thing to do is to think one step ahead, not two or three, um, because it's the world is so complex that even if if you just get that one step ahead right, you're you're pretty lucky. <laughs> And do you think it's a problem, especially in London, where people buy flats not in order to live, not in order to stay, not even in order to have a holiday home or whatever it may be, it's simply as an investment? Or do you think that is a problem that's been over-exaggerated by the media? It's been massively exaggerated, especially foreign buyers. Um, foreign owners are more likely, I believe, to let the units be empty, um, which obviously if you're buying it to rent it out, um, that shifts the market somewhat towards rental. That isn't obviously a bad thing. Um, lots of people rent, and I, I, I have just re just this weekend I made a decision. I was considering um, buying a house, and I decided I'm going to rent for at least another year because it gives me flexibility and freedom. So, so renting renting isn't bad. Um, foreign ownership, just in general, of of luxury flats in in London is a very very small fraction of the market mm. in terms of actual units. It's quite a big fraction of the market in terms of the money because the flats are so expensive. But um, in terms of the the actual um, the actual number of units, it's a drop in the ocean. Um, so I, I don't think it's I don't think it's that important. I think it's more I think any issue like that. So we also have the problem of um, or the the possible problem excuse me, the possible problem of land banking, where developers have permission to build on a plot, but don't build on it for five or six years. And there are actually rational reasons for that. It's because they need to be able to queue up for a given amount of kind of workforce and capital and so on. They need to have kind of an assurance that for the next six years they'll have plots they'll be able to build on. But it's also pretty annoying if you're a local council, you give permission to build, a, to build on a piece of land, and they don't go for that. You think, well, what's the point? You know, why, am I, why are we bothering to go to this political effort? Um, but all those things are kind of symptoms of a deeper problem. Housing shouldn't be an investment. The, f the fundamental problem is that housing is an investment. It shouldn't be an investment any more than, you know, a plane ticket is an investment or a, or a, a car, or, you know, a, a, a used Toyota is an investment. Those things are consumption goods. They're things that we pay for because we like using them. Um, housing should be the same. The only reason that housing is an investment good the only reason that housing is more economically like a piece of fine art or a piece of gold is because the supply is fixed or the supply is nearly fixed, and that's because of the planning system. So the, so the problems that, pe that exist, which I admit, I, 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 in my opinion, the foreign owner's problem is a small part of the problem, but it's clearly any unit that's going vacant uh, is, 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 is sort of suboptimal, you know, is, is not what we want if there are people who don't have places to live. But the problem is that it's an investment good, and it shouldn't be an investment good. But the other problem there, Sam, is that housing is the only time in the normal person's life when they can borrow a huge amount of money to gamble with. 
right? You cannot borrow 200,000 or 300 or 500,000 pounds from a bank yeah. to invest in the stock market yeah. as an ordinary person. But housing is one area where you can do that because you've got the collateral of the house. And I think that's what's happened over the last 20 years is a lot of people have treated it as an investment, as you mm. say. Not because they have money sitting around yeah. to invest in it, but because they've been able to borrow money to yeah. do that. And the second homes issue, I think, is one of the reasons that also the government doesn't want to allow house prices to fall. Mm. Because if they were, a lot of these people would lose out. And again, as I say, politically, the price would be, yeah. would be very, very I think that's right. I, I view that as um, two blades of a scissors. Um, you, you kind of need both for the effect that we've seen to happen. Um, it, it, it doesn't matter how much you can borrow to um, fund the price of a car, right? Uh, borrowing interest rates falling doesn't mean that car prices rise, even though mm. people could, in, could in theory, buy, borrow more to, buy, to, to get a bigger auto loan, because the supply of cars is pretty elastic. As, as demand increases, we just build more cars. So yeah, you can borrow 100,000, but you just end up with five Toyotas instead of one, instead of one uh, Toyota. And they all diminish in value over time. Yeah, yeah, exactly, because, because they're not investment goods, because we can just build more of them as we want mm. to. They're yeah. consumption goods, yeah. for the most part. Classic cars are different, because they are actually fixed in supply. Yeah. But uh, modern, cars are di- modern cars are what I'm talking about. Can I just say, this uh, episode has been sponsored by Toyota. Yeah, I know, it's, <laughs> it's really a car. I, well, it hasn't, but if you'd like to sponsor us, yeah. We um, are corrupt. <laughs> I will take any money or cash payment. Anyway, sorry. You're not Sam. giving it, you're not giving immigrants a good look here. <laughs> a Russian and a Venezuelan yeah. offering to do anything for money. That's a good look. Yeah. Uh, no accurate. But yeah, it's I mean it's it's two blades of a scissors. Um I think you're right though that there is a what what economists call a moral hazard. In the same way that when you bail out a bank you encourage the bank to take risks, to take more risks right. in the future. And when, when the bank thinks it'll be bailed out, you encourage them to take more risks. I think there might be an implicit moral hazard in the system mm-hmm. where people, if you're looking at a mortgage, um, for one thing, you know, this I'm sure isn't uh, a, a system-wide problem, but it is very strange when you look at the cost of a mortgage that they only show you the, based on today's interest rates when we know that interest rates are going to rise in the future. Now, I don't think the bank would lend that money out if they didn't think that they'd get that money back, but I do think it's possible that a lot of people are borrowing money without realising that a much bigger fraction of their income is going to be taken up in interest payments in five years' time once interest rates are probably up by, you know, half a percentage point or one percentage point, I don't know. Um, that to me seems like a, a huge nasty surprise that a lot of people are facing. Um, but yeah, I think it's two blades of a scissors. Well, let's move on a little bit and talk about technology. You're, you're someone who's optimistic about the, the future of technology. Our producer, before we started this show, was convincing me that we're about to eliminate scarcity and everything is going to be dandy. Is he right about that? He's not allowed to join in, by the way, so you say whatever you want. <laughs> um, no, I don't think we're going to eliminate scarcity. Ever? Uh, no, ever. I mean, we'll always... See, you're wrong. That's it. That's it, you're Shh. wrong, Troy. Uh, I mean, <laughs> time, time will always be scarce. Um, you mm. know, we will always have a scarcity of time. Um, even if resources become uh, abundant and super abundant, time will always be scarce. So we'll always have to figure out ways both of using our own time and of using other people's time. Um, and a lot of, you know, a lot of what we want from other people is their time, whether it's to do a service for us or to just spend time with us. Um, I, but I think we're very, very far away from uh, material superabundance. Um, it's true that the kind of basic, uh, some of the basics of, of living are, are very cheap. Um, to me, technology is more likely to expand the frontier of what we can do um, than it is to kind of make it trivially easy uh, to, un- until we have kind of extremely, extremely good AI that isn't so good that it can, that it has a desire to um, eliminate us uh, for self-interested reasons. A purely rational <laughs> desire to yeah, destroy yeah, all humanity. Yeah, until yeah. we have that. I mean, there's a, there, then, there, then we get into other questions about um, kind of the dangers of AI and so on. But um, I think what's more likely is that um, technology will make kind of recreation much more enjoyable. And so I think that might be the thing that, um, you know, Keynes famously wrote a, 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 an essay about 100 years ago called The Economic um, Possibilities for Our Grandchildren. And he sort of famously predicted, you know, we'd be working three hours, three days a week um, and so on. And his view was that um, what they had at the time in terms of resources, like what, what your kind of weekly income was, that was enough for anybody. Um, so as we get better at making things, we'll stick with that and then we'll just spend more time off. And as it turned out, actually, we just wanted more stuff, and we mm. just we our, our desire for more stuff is just infinite. Um, so we we kept just our, our frontiers of sort of what we wanted just grew and grew and grew, um, and that's good. That's that's fine. 
um, the the only thing that might push against that is that if actually leisure itself can become more pleasurable. So um, Tyler Cowen, who's an economist in America, he writes the Marginal Revolution blog along with Alex Tabarrok. Um, he argues that to some extent, and this sounds a bit silly, but to some extent. Uh, youth unemployment is probably partly driven by video games um, because it's just much more enjoyable to be unemployed now than it was to be unemployed 15 or 20 years ago. There's just more you can do with your with, with spare time. And, I mean, as somebody who just spent the weekend playing on my Switch, um, my, the Octopath Traveler RPG just came out and it was a great weekend, you know, in between World Cup games. It was too hot to go outside, so I just played video games. And um, as that becomes better, and as sort of leisure as we, become, we come up with better things to do with leisure. So it might begin with virtual reality. Um, I think simulated reality, when you, when you actually experience the thing in your head, is, is, the real, is the real prize that we really should be looking for. Um, but as things like that, probably better drugs come available. Um, you know, I, I think that the this sounds like a great future, which is all going to be high playing computer games. Sure, and I mean, that's so, basically so, my university. <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, that was fun. I, I mean, oh, that was it great. It was, that was my university too, and I liked that. Yeah, uh, I'll happily go back there now. Yeah. I'll be honest with you. Um, so yeah, so I mean, um, there are there are certain dimensions um, to do with, in terms of kind of um, making the world better. Uh, I think it'll be a lot easier to feed people. I think it'll be a lot easier to prevent people from dying of disease, um, and, and that's obvious. But um, I think the really interesting dimension will be as leisure time um, gets better and better. It's it's inconceivable to me that um, the kind of the kind of advances we're making in biochemistry and in genetics um, that we will not figure out how to, for example, give a kind of time limited. Uh, experience that's similar to taking ecstasy or cocaine in a very safe way. I just think it's inconceivable. You know, um, I like you. <laughs> the, the, I mean, the argument, the, the best argument against what I'm saying is how bad artificial sweeteners still are. You know, it's yeah. been legal to research artificial sweeteners mm. for forever, and they still suck. You know, they're still unbelievably bad compared to sugar, um, but they operate in slightly different ways. And um, I think that as we move towards drug legalization, and I think we are, and I think we will legalize m most, if not all, drugs quite soon. Um, as really? Within my lifetime is what I mean by quite soon. Oh, within soon. your yeah. lifetime. Okay. Yeah, I think cannabis will be legalized here within five years. Within um, five years? Yeah. I so think. in 2018, we'll have you back on in two, yeah, 2023. 2023. And if I, we can't have I've a chosen. joint on set, yeah. and actually we can't because we're smoking indoors, that's no longer allowed. Oh, yeah, that'll be, that'll, oh, that's yeah. very bad. Yeah, that's yeah, very, yeah, very yeah. bad. You'll have, you have to smoke it in um, special government-approved areas. <laughs> but um, <laughs> Which will take all the joy out of it. <laughs> yeah, well, that's, so that's the, like, the grayification of life. It's yeah. as, we, as we kind of move towards um, greater liberalism in terms of drugs, as I, I, I think we are. The reason I say five years is because I I don't think it'll happen before the next election, but I think it will happen straight after the next really? election. Yeah. yeah. What, hold on. What's your evidence for that? Because the major parties are both opposed to it. The last time this issue came up in a massive way, I think it was about 2010, the guy who we were trying to get him on the show, and hopefully we will, David Nutt, Professor oh, yeah. David Nutt, he yeah. got basically, he, he got asked to be fired, he got asked to leave, right? Mm -hmm. For saying that marijuana is not as bad as alcohol, I think. Yeah, and he, he, he cor completely correctly compared yeah. the dangers, the deaths from ecstasy yeah. to the deaths from horse riding. Yeah. And for, <laughs> for, for making a correct, completely clear, anybody could check the data comparison, yeah. he was fired, yeah. Right, so that's my point. Astonishing, yeah. That politically, this issue doesn't... I, I mean, I, I, tell me where, what you're saying that I'm not seeing. The, uh, it's, the, it's the shift in the United States. Um, there, mm. It's moving there for different reasons. One, one I think, being that um, the like the the paradox being there, much more illiberal drinking culture means that it's much more normal for kind of just smoking cannabis is just much more widespread in the U.S. than it is here. Even more widespread um, in the U.S. than it is here. Um, that has now led to it being legalized in uh, on the entire West Coast now. Um, California, the really crucial state, because it's so culturally important, because. Most um, TV shows in America, most kind of sitcoms and things like that are filmed in California. These things have an, more, an enormous cultural impact, and I think they normalize it in a way that is, is a sort of the key to getting... Mm. Um, to me, gay marriage happening, um, the cause of that was cultural normalization. It was having gay characters in TV shows that weren't kind of jokes, they weren't kind of people that were there as like, haha, let's laugh at these people. They were just normal human beings who happened to be gay. And I think that that helped people who maybe didn't know people like that in their lives or maybe didn't see gay people like that uh, to begin to see that in that way. And I think a similar thing will probably happen with um, cannabis. Are you saying Will and Grace made gay marriage? Yeah, almost certainly, yeah. I would say that it had a huge, huge contributing 
um, effect. Yeah, I mean, I don't have data for this, so I'm, I'm, I, try, I try to, you know, I'm straying off my economist's territory. But um, yeah, I think normalization is the kind of the key to that kind of liberalization. Um, and I think that as it gets normalized across America, we just follow America. I mean, the UK just follows, all political discourse follows American discourse. You know, we have arguments about things that have nothing to, you know, that just are not relevant in the UK. We have huge arguments about, like, Black Lives Matter, which just isn't a thing in the UK. Mm. Like, the, you know, there are problems to do with the police and so on, but the, the kind of things that Black Lives Matter were um, campaigning about still somehow, this became the kind of number one thing that we were talking about because we consume so much American media. Um, we're, we're, you know, we just, we just take... And, and this happens left and right politically. Mm. We look to Americans for what we're what, for what we talk about. You know, um, one of the major the the, the, the woman Ash Sarker, who mm. um, the, who we talked about earlier, who was on, who said to Morgan, I'm literally a communist. Yeah, yeah. she was um, she was in Teen Vogue. Um, Kind of, which isn't actually a thing that teenagers read, I don't think. I think it's like a weird <laughs> agit prop magazine that is sort of... It's a weird thing. But anyway, and she was sort of saying, oh, why am I a communist? And it was something to do with she's against sort of uh, military imperialism, which is a big yeah, thing. Yeah, the communists it. never did any of that, right? <laughs> well, sure, sure. Military imperialism, um, putting too many people in um, jail. Um, yeah, communists and, never did any of that either. Yeah. <laughs> and, um, I, and the third one was something to do with... Uh, remember but either way they were things that are american talking points They're, that we don't we don't have a mass mass imprisonment in the uk yeah we don't we don't put millions of people in jail in the uk the way they do in america all of the things that people think about are driven oh oh, oh yeah and uh, sorry the third one was um the separation of children and their parents um when they when they uh, migrate into the u.s mm. uh, which i which i think is appalling and which i hate um, but these, well, we this isn't that something that we either. do in the UK. Yeah, yeah. Um, and so you're defining yourself by American, by American uh, talking points, by American political wedge issues. Um, and everybody does. You know, Liz Truss, who I think is wonderful, the um, Chief Secretary of the Treasury, gave a speech about um, occupational licensing. Now, in the US, occupational licensing, you need to have a license to become a hair braider. You know, everything is licensed. It's insane. Um, in the UK, you need to have a license to be a doctor or a lawyer and maybe two or three other things. Um, just everybody is, just adopts these American um, political talking points and political wedge issues wholesale because that's where our, our, that's what our culture uh, comes from. Um, so I think with cannabis, it's no different. As America legalizes, we will legalize as well. Um, it doesn't. The, the parties don't define things really. They just follow the rest of it. They just follow culture when it comes to stuff like this. At least that's fascinating. In my view. So joints all around. Within, <laughs> within five Unfortunately, years. I hate cannabis. So um, yeah, I mean, for God, me, you're such a square. No, I know. <laughs> I, 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 yeah, I really, um, I think it's an awful drug. So <laughs> Why? It uh, makes me feel ill and uh, makes me sleepy. So, oh, there you go. Yeah. One of them. Yeah. Can't hack it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, so what, what do you think about cocaine? I mean, do you enjoy it? No, no, I'm joking. I mean, in terms of, do you think that's going to be legalised anytime soon or do you think that's going to be a much harder sell? I think it's a harder sell. Probably cocaine is, is harder than MDMA because um, cocaine is reasonably easy to turn into crack. Um, and if cocaine became widely available... I actually don't think people would move on to crack because the reason you smoke crack is because it's cheaper per kind of the effect it has than cocaine is. You, I mean, crack exists really because cocaine is expensive and legalization would make it much, much cheaper. Um, but that might be an issue. But I think MDMA, cocaine and cannabis are the three that really there should be no debate about legalizing. Um, heroin, it becomes much more difficult because it's so strongly addictive. Um, and... Um, it's it's much more like a kind of medical problem and and kind of paternalism where you know which I, I said earlier being anti-paternalist is a sort of defining liberal trait but but heroin is where most people um, I think including myself although I, I don't I, I don't know for certain would say that you're kind of not in your right mind if you if you take heroin you've sort of become uh, you've kind of you lost you you're not, you're not, you, you don't have your full faculties available to you but cannabis MDMA and cocaine no question. They'd be much safer, for one. They'd be probably a lot more enjoyable, um, which is um, important. Um, you know, it's maybe the, you'd uh, enjoy it. <laughs> I think I would enjoy the MDMA and the cocaine. All right, we've outed you. All right, so so drugs all round. Um, so where what's the future according to Sabahman? Where are we going to be five, ten years from now? What are we not seeing that's coming towards us? Well, I think politically. Um, a lot depends on productivity growth. 
Uh, I know it's a, a it's an exciting and sexy concept. For a lot depends group. on us getting being able to return to the kind of trend that we were at before the crisis. Um, it really seems as if something has broken in the economy. That means that it's sort of fundamentally, in terms of output, um, growing at different in different ways, and that people at the top, the kind of um, software engineers and the people who are very gifted, will be able to. Um, grow and grow and grow and be able to be extremely productive and, um, and and innovative and that's good for everybody because you get to use the products they make but it's not so great in terms of the in terms of incomes if this sort of coming apart of um, the kind of cognitive elite and the kind of everybody else continues mm-hmm. and I don't think that's just an economic problem I think it's a social problem I think the feeling that somebody else uh, has a great life and you don't have a great life that, I mean, that's a very troubling theory, feeling, and the feeling that your kids aren't going to have a, a great life and somebody else's kids are going to have a great life, that's a very, very um, troubling thing. And I think that's a, maybe at the root of uh, kind of where we are politically right now. And I don't know if... And that's why I think the kind of economic fundamentals matter so much because that's what, that's what determines whether you feel like tomorrow is going to be better than today was and next year will be better for your kids than this, than this year is. Um, and whether that changes... Um, I don't know. I think it probably will. Um, I tend to think that the economy and the global economy is more robust than people give it credit for. Um, I think China, China not um, stagnating matters a lot. If China continues to grow, then that's very, very good for everybody else. Um, that's that. That's not only a country that is um, just producing things, demanding things, buying things. Um, but it's also a country that has a strong stake in the global kind of trading, the global liberal trading order, the kind of f- relatively free trade order uh, being preserved, and in kind of peace in the sort of Eurasian continent um, being preserved. So I think that's a good thing. Um, and India might drive that as well, but I don't know. Uh, I think it feels to me like Europe and the, the United States are kind of stagnating a bit. Um, it, and it feels, apart from the Silicon Valley element of the United States, like Europe is too focused on AI. It's too focused on kind of getting the rules right and kind of getting per, a perfect set of rules uh, when it comes to technology and when it comes to the economy and trade and so on. And when it comes to migration, actually, when it comes to kind of refugees coming in. Um, Bruno Macais, who's a f- former Portuguese minister for Europe, has his book called *The Dawn of Eurasia*, and his um, sort of the way he describes the European Union is, and I say this as a person who's anti-Brexit, is as people trying to kind of design a system that can run without human control, um, and so they're trying to devise kind of formula mm-hmm. for allocating refugees to countries, and it's just crazy because that's not what the real world is, and that's not what politics is, um, and I worry that that sort of Obsession with kind of getting the kind of building this sort of perfect, beautiful structure, uh, a perfect, beautiful constitution, um, will really hurt Europe because they've missed the kind of energy and dynamism that is what really drives economic improvement. And in the U.S., I think um, all sorts of uh, you know the the kind of the Trump um, the Trump madness um, seems to have infected the whole political culture there, and it really. The ultimate problem, actually, in the U.S., and I think possibly it will come over here, because the downside of us taking all American politics is that we take all American politics, but is the, the bleeding of politics into every step of people's lives, mm. you know, is, is everything becomes a political action. Um, politics, really, in my view, should be a thing that weirdos debate amongst themselves and that doesn't really matter very much to people. He's talking about us. <laughs> yeah. No, no. It, should be, it should be like football, you know? It should be like yeah. a, a hobbyist thing that if you like it, you like it, and it's, you can choose a team, you know, we can have a fun argument, we can some, maybe, you know, we can argue and maybe change each other's minds or not, whatever, and, um, and, that, and that's that. It's like a kind of a hobbyist thing. Um, it shouldn't be something that obsesses people uh, at every point in their lives, and, and unfortunately, whether people like it or not, it is now something that affects every mm. every element of their lives, um, and that for me is a kind of uh, a sort of modest case for a small state or for a, a, a limited state. Is that politics makes us hate each other? Politics makes us enemies and adversaries because politics really is zero sum game. Most of the world is not positive sum game. We can interact with each other and we're both better off, but politics is zero sum game. If you get this, I don't get it. And so we hate each other when it comes to that. And I think that 
a the more that that kind of mindset bleeds into the more elements of our lives and the more our uh, interactions with each other are defined by what side are you on, the more we'll hate each other. And my fear is that that will happen in America and I worry that that might spread to the rest of the English-speaking world as well. How much do you blame social media for that? To some extent, a little bit. Um, I, I don't know how much I blame social media. Um, I blame, certainly I blame old people using the internet for a lot of it. But it's true. I mean, young people know that most of the internet is bollocks. You know, young people, are, they, they kind of have an inoculation against what they read online. Whereas old people are much more credulous because they're used to what they read being true. And they're used to having kind of gatekeepers um, only let them read what's basically true. Um, so... Yeah, I blame, and I mean, old people are much, much, much more susceptible to fake news and to um, not just fake news, but kind of crappy news. You know, you know, fake news is like actually just lies. Uh, crappy news is heavily biased. You know, there might be, a, there's, there's probably some truth, like the, the words are probably true, but what they're omitting means that they've slanted the story in such a terrible way. Old people are really susceptible to that um, because they're really, they're used to news being a thing that's fairly neutral and that they can trust. Um, so I think it might be a little bit, I mean, this is a, this is a kind of, um, you know the expression, apart from that, Mrs. Lincoln, how is the play? Mm. Um, <laughs> it might be a bit like this, but to say that um, this might be a bit like the printing press, uh, which we eventually got used to. It took about 100 years of bloody civil war mm. and uh, everybody hating each other um, because religion is what defined mm. their lives. Mm-hmm. Um, so it might be, it might be uh, I hope it doesn't come to that. Um, I blame social media to some extent. Um, if I could push a button and just sort of magically mean that nobody wanted to talk about politics online, I think that would make the world a lot better place. I wouldn't censor them because I don't want to give anybody the power to censor that. Yeah. But um, they kind of, as I, I'm a huge free speech person um, because I think that free speech helps us arrive at the right answer. I think free speech in science is what helps us arrive at the right answer. And if you didn't have free speech in science, then you would often get the wrong answer. And I sort of draw that into other areas of our lives. Free speech in markets is good because it allows us to say, this is a good product, this is a bad product, don't go to this company because they'll rip you off. That's a really great way of making markets honest. Um, but I don't know if politics has the same kind of correction mechanisms. Politics seems to not have, have, have the kind of correction mechanisms of science and markets. Um, for, you know, if a theory is wrong, you can test it and it's wrong. Mm. If a product is bad, you can try it and it's bad. In politics, it's kind of hard. What's the, how do we figure out what the right answer is, what the wrong answer is, because there'll always be a hundred explanations as to why it failed, even if you do it and it, and and you think that it's good. Um, so you know that's a very long and rambling way of of saying my my biggest fear is that politics ends up dominating um, economic growth and trade and technological advances. Um, I think it might, I think it might, but I I'm generally an optimist. If you're an old person watching this online, just, just get off the internet. Yeah, yeah. Just you're, 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 you're taking up space. Get off the internet. <laughs> you're why, why are you even here? You're susceptible to fake news. Just turn this shit off. Um, <laughs> yeah, so, nice positive note to end the podcast. Yeah, 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 I thought so. Excellent. So pro-drugs, anti-old people. <laughs> yeah. yeah. If you combine the two, you can combine drugs and old people, kill off the old people. Yeah, there you go. yeah. Problem go. solved. Problem solved. All right, I feel like we've taken it in the wrong direction. <laughs> Sam, the, the last question we always like to ask our guests is, what is the one thing that we're not talking about that we should be talking about? Animal welfare. Mm. Um, animal welfare is the thing that we should be talking about. Um, I think that this will be the thing that has the technological solution. Um, I think that as we are increasingly able to grow meat, um, not meat not meat replicas, but actual meat um, in factories and in labs, I think that we will begin to realise that the way animals are treated um, in our in our world is is very very bad, and I suspect it's the thing that our children will look to us and say, "Why on earth? Why the hell were you treating animals that way?" Wow, there we go. Are you a vegan? No. Because <laughs> 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 meat tastes good. Yeah. <laughs> yep, yep. I, I do I do eat um, humanely reared meat. Um, my view is that it's be- it's better to um, have lived a life that's good and then to be killed than to have never lived at all. Um, I would much rather, if my own life, if, if you said to me, you can either never be born or you'll live your life and mm. then at the age of 40, somebody's going to kill you and eat you, I would definitely take the second one. And I think that most animals would probably make that choice too if they could. So I think that um, veganism isn't actually demanded. 
um, but hum eating humanely treated animals is. Can you write that down for me so I can regurgitate it the next time someone lectures me well, about you had, you had Diana Fleischmann on a few yes. weeks ago, and I have this debate with her occasionally. She completely thinks I'm wrong, and she's a lot smarter than me. So. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Well, well that Matt, we've had you on as well. Thank you so much for coming on. Uh, Thank you. You're on Twitter at? S8MB, the number eight. Like Sam S B, but with the number eight for an A. Perfect. We'll put that at the bottom of the video. Yeah. And is there anything else that you would like to promote? Is we, uh, nope. Anything in particular? You're not no. writing a book yet? You've no, 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 I don't have the attention span to write a book. Oh. <laughs> well, when you do, which I suspect you probably will at some point, let's know. Well, oh, thanks we'll, very much. We'll love to really, chat really, to you again. Really enjoyable coming here. Yeah, really nice conversation, I thought. Yeah. Great stuff, thank you. Thank yeah. you. Uh, I'm at Constantine Kissin. You can follow me on Twitter as well. I'm a failing human. Um, and if you've enjoyed the podcast, please give us a rating on iTunes. Uh, five stars, thank you. Comment, thank you. Uh, tell a friend. Um, you can also go on uh, YouTube, uh, give us a follow, sub us in. And uh, there was something to do with a bell. What was it? What's the, the bell? There's a, there's a bell next to the subscribe button. If you click that, you will actually get notifications when we put a video out. There you go. Francis is an old person. He's not familiar with technology. I know. I love fake news. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Thank you very much. And we'll see you next week. Before you go, consider joining our exclusive member feed. As a member, you'll get ad-free and extended interviews. Click the membership link in the podcast description or find the exclusive episodes link on your podcast listening app to join us.